0: hey guys my name is julian castle and today i'm with tom cruise tom cruise is an expert in section eight housing he buys rentals and today we're going to be talking about his journey welcome to elevate america where we help your american dream come true we share stories of hope teamwork and personal growth together we'll explore stories that inspire us all to reach new heights hope you enjoyed learn and subscribe and now let's meet some big dreamers i'm julian castle and it's time to elevate america Tom, thank you for coming in. How are you doing today? Good, man. I appreciate you having me on the podcast. appreciate it. Thank you. Tom, I like to start my uh, podcast interviews with a question. You suddenly lose everything. What would you do? I would essentially do what I did when I
1: started, you know, originally uh, nine years ago. Um, I would accelerate it. I did that by wholesaling properties. That's essentially how I got my start. If you don't know what that is, that's when you basically put a property under contract. And then you try to find another buyer for it. You assign the contract to them for a much higher price and make the difference. It allows you to buy properties without having a ton of cash or it allows you to build cash flow without really having a bunch of cash starting out. And then from that, I reinvested that into rental properties. Um, I got to about 10 rental properties by reinvesting a lot of the money that I made from wholesaling assignment fees. And then from there, I um, started getting partners. You know, Once I built an established track record, of already having existing properties and starting, you know, renting them out and then eventually I got Section Eight tenants in them. Um, that's how I was able to scale so quickly is by using other people's money to build portfolios. I would occupy them with Section Eight tenants. And then from that point forward, I would do cash out refinances because I forced so much value on those properties by um, having Section Eight tenants as my as as the people in those units. Um, and then I retained the units for myself after I performed the cash out refi. That's essentially my my main model was single family properties. Eventually I got into portfolios and then
0: small multifamily duplexes, triplexes, and quads. Got it. Cool. Um just for context, you know, what is the unit count you have now? And I'm a little under like, yeah, yeah. I'm a little over six hundred and fifty units right now across four different states.
1: Um and I started uh in my mid twenties, so about nine years ago. Cool.
0: And um how many deals are you doing a month currently?
1: I'm buying anywhere from eight to twelve properties per month right now. Um, I don't buy a lot of portfolios right now. I'm mostly focusing on um I'm consolidating. I'm selling a lot of my properties that I originally bought in North Carolina that I've appreciated a lot. And then I'm buying five, six, seven properties in uh lower price markets because there's where I started out has just exploded in in value. So I'm just taking advantage of that. I'm doing
0: a lot of ten thirty-one exchanges and um, buying you know, anywhere from eight to 10 units per month. Got it. And so let's um, dive into it. So wholesaling, what is the first step to get it to wholesaling?
1: Yeah, the first part of the process is finding a market that has a lot of units that would work like that, that would work well with wholesaling, meaning they're distressed, or meaning there's a lot of uh, houses that have been on the market for a long time. People aren't able to sell them. Uh, They're either, you know, too expensive. I also look for a lot of for sale by owners. Um, when you're not, when you don't have to deal with a real estate agent it making things a whole lot easier on getting the deal done, um, and then from that point, it's a matter of putting the property under contract. So let's say if you buy, found a property for seventy thousand dollars, you put it under contract at seventy thousand um, dollars. Well, if it's listed at seventy thousand, you obviously want to get it at a lower price so you have margin there. So let's say you get it for fifty five thousand, and then you find someone that wants to buy it at sixty five thousand or sixty three thousand, you're making the difference between the fifty five thousand you have it under contract as. And then the sixty three thousand that you you know assigned it to, so you'd make eight thousand dollars as an assignment fee on that deal. Um, the toughest part about wholesaling is really finding a buyer's list because obviously you have to find you know flippers and other landlords or other people that would want to buy that deal. But once you have a good deal and a contract and you have it at a good you know um, price point, finding buyers for, for for real estate it's not that difficult, especially if you go to a lot of the real estate investor meetups, a lot of different uh, interest-based events that I that I went to that that worked really well to to build a buyer's list.
0: Real quick, guys, no ads here, just real stories. The only ask I have is you spread the word, rate, review, or share this podcast. It may inspire someone out there to reach new heights. That's great. So um, how can someone go in to the internet and find a market that makes sense? Yeah, I mean, I would
1: recommend just, I, I use realtor.com. And then as far as the markets that I look for, anywhere in the Midwest and the Southeast, um, that you're not gonna find these properties that are gonna be really good for it in New York City or San Francisco or these really expensive markets. Uh, most of the time when I find these distressed properties are gonna be in like Jacksonville, North Carolina, or even Jacksonville, Florida, uh, Fayetteville, North Carolina. These are markets that have generally lower median incomes. Uh, the population is maybe like a secondary or tertiary type of market. But it's not a major metropolitan area that I that I've wholesaled in. Um you also don't want to go too rural. You don't want to go too small because you won't find any buyers for it. And the inventory to buy will be pretty limited. But
0: yeah, that's that's how I looked for it. Got it. And um, you know, once you find a market and you know, what what, what do you do? How do you pull a list of uh distressed home buyers? Yeah, I, I
1: look on on like I said before realtor.com and I also use quite a bit of um, uh, Facebook Marketplace Craigslist made, a lot of off-market sources work really well for identifying sellers that just haven't been able to sell their property um, we also did a lot of advertising so we would do like Facebook ads where we would promote you know the we buy only houses or we buy houses type of uh, language and then we would get inbound needs from that as well we would also do banded signs so we put you know these signs out on the corner of the streets that say we buy houses uh, cash you know tenant, whatever the uh, marketing that we were running at the time. And then we would just we would try three or four different marketing techniques every single month um between online with inbound marketing, more grassroots, you know, traditional bandit signs. And then also just, you know, scouring uh uh online sales directories like Facebook or Craigslist or uh, we also use what was another one that we use
0: I think it was Hot Pass. There's a few like online directories for 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 markets like that. Got it. Okay. So let's say, um, you know, one of the, my audience members goes and finds a, one of these uh, owners through one of these different marketing methods. How does someone find the right price to bid in? You know, how do they find the comps? You know, how do they do that? Yeah, um as far as comps I just use I'm not a licensed agent so I don't have access to a comps
1: like that I just use realtor.com and if you look at just sold you could see all the properties that sold in that area um and that's a good way of get kind of getting a baseline of what the values of the properties are going to be and then from that point forward um it's just identifying which units are going to work the best for um either your buyers ideally you already have some buyers lined up that you know you already know what their buy box is because then from that point forward it's just a matter of saying hey look I already identified a property. I know that you like to do buy and hold on um, three bedroom units in this area, in this zip code. I already have a property identified for it. If, if the numbers match up underneath the comps and if there's not if, if there's not a ton of repairs, ideally there's not a ton of repairs on the property that you're buying, um, then you can kind of just work out your, your profit margin there with your end buyer. Um, but yeah, that's essentially how we backed it into it. We knew that we had three buyers. They're buying you know, downtown at the beach and maybe like towards Jacksonville. And then we would identify properties in those areas, uh, make sure they're kind of within their buying criteria. We put them under contract and it's just a matter of
0: emailing, you know, the prospective buyer and go from there. Got it. Okay. So it sounds like you kind of worked your way around and uh, when and got some buyers first, um, could you touch on how you found these buyers?
1: Yeah, that's what I was mentioning. I went to like real estate investor meetups. I would go to basically any type of in-person um, events that I could go to. It was a little tough uh, during the pandemic in 2020 because I was still doing some wholesaling, you know, even three or four years ago. Um, it, it was mostly like digital events, but now it's all back to normal. So um, we would use meetup.com or just looking up real estate investor chapters. And then I would even meet uh, potential buyers like Cars and Coffee and other types of interest based events like that. Cool.
0: All right. So um, great. So you find a distressed home buyer, you find some properties nearby that have been selling on realtor.com then you, you know, find a way, you know, what is the right uh, formula in order to make sure that you offer a right price so that you can then come and sell it after to your... I mean, I just lowball them uh, pretty
1: uh, much across the board, you know, from 25 to 30% under what they're asking for, especially if the property is under distress and if it needs some work, it just makes it that much better. You can go and try to figure out the ARV or the after repair value to determine what you're going to be buying it at. Um, generally the properties that i was buying for these you know buyers um i already knew how much they were paying in order for them to you know be cash flowing right so if they're going to be flipping the property or if they're going to be a long-term landlord i already kind of knew the model um and that's just a matter of knowing your buyer and knowing exactly what type of properties they're looking for and then you can look at the cops and say hey look this three bedroom in this part of town just sold for 80 grand um, you know, if I can get it to you for that, it probably makes sense, especially if you're going to be flipping it and adding, enforcing value on it. So there's, there's a lot of different ways you can approach that. But I always just did a buyer specific versus just looking at a formula and saying, okay, I need to be at 20% on this property, and then I'm going to go find a buyer. We always looked for deals based on, you know, otherwise it's just a waste of time because then you you have no one to buy it and you're stuck there, you know, waiting for the the time to expire
0: on the contract. Got it. Okay. And um, great, so this is how you first started, and then this is how you got some cash flow. Exactly. Yeah. So I um. Yeah, that's essentially how I was able to have the down payment funds for uh, my first rentals. Gotcha. And so, tell me how you went across um, identifying your rentals. Yeah,
1: I mean, I kind of um, got into a buy buy my first condo to actually live in, and then six months in, I decided that I was going to need a. I wanted a house, single-family property, and I couldn't sell my condo because I was upside down on it. Actually, I'd only put like three or four percent down with an FHA loan, so I ended up renting. It um, was making a couple hundred dollars over what my rental amount was or what my mortgage was, and that's kind of where I kind of got the idea of getting into the rental game. So then I started buying condos, sixty 000 to eighty thousand dollars condos in Wilmington, North Carolina, um and then that was just kind of the start. Before I got then eventually. I realized that HOAs are a joke, and dealing with all the fees and assessments that came with HOAs was not something I wanted to deal with. So then I started buying single families in non HOA neighborhoods, and then eventually got into Section
0: Eight. Gotcha. Okay. Um. So, you got into some good neighborhoods, and you, re- you know you got some property, and then you decided the HOAs were not for you. So then you went and right. in investing some areas where there is no HOAs for single family. Um. How do you analyze a rental? Yeah, I mean, I knew that the rents in that area were around 1300 fourteen hundred for a three-bedroom.
1: So if I was buying anything under $100,000 um, for a lower-income unit like that, I knew I was going to cash flow. Especially with the debt that I was getting back then in 2017, 2018, 2019, it was still relatively like I think five and a half six 6%. So it wasn't any crazy investment uh, loan uh, interest rates at the time. And I was looking for units that were mostly turnkey. I've never bought a remodel. I never do any value add. I don't. I don't like to do any of that. I like to have a unit ready, enclosed, maybe one or two thousand dollars in cosmetic repairs um, to pass, you know, inspections and get attended in there. But that's always been my model. I, I just hate dealing with contractors and subcontractors and all the unknowns that come with remodeling.
0: So I just don't do it. Yeah. And uh, sounds good. Um, so tell me about this. Uh... Secret niche called Section Eight. Yeah, so essentially, after I got into single family, I eventually bought a a property for
1: fifty five thousand dollars, and it was rented at thirteen hundred fifty dollars per month. And mm. the day after closing, I come to find out that uh, it was a Section Eight tenant, which the seller never disclosed to me when I was under contract with them. But didn't really matter. He was like, "Hey, we need to switch you over to your direct deposit, um, so you can start receiving payments for that." And then from that point forward. Um, uh, I got my first, you know, Section Eight payment. I went through my first inspection. Had to kind of go through trial and error. So what's was freaking out. I mean, there's all these misconceptions about Section Eight and the tenants that come with it, and they're just misconceptions. It's just people, for the most part, don't know what they're doing with Section Eight, and
0: you get a lot of bad outcomes if you, you know, aren't sure how to manage it. Gotcha. So tell us about some of the differences and how you would what, you do when you learn about. Them? Yeah. So, I mean, really the only difference that you have with Section 8 as far as
1: like a regular tenant is you have annual inspections, right? So, the government will come and make sure that the property is being taken care of, that you're not being a slumlord. Because if you are taking care of the property or if the tenant's are taking care of the property, then they're just going to stop the payment. You know, they'll give you a chance to fix it. But if you continue to fail inspections on a, you know, weekly basis um, or whenever they come out to reinspect, then they just stop making the payments until you remediate them. So, that's the main difference between regular regular and and non and uh section eight the advantage is they pay
0: way above market rent you know so when i was buying these properties back you know at that time in woman hey real quick guys boost your productivity with time boxing even big names like elon musk swear by it we've got a cool sheet to help you out grab yours at bit.ly slash box sheet if you don't like it there's a 30 day money back guarantee i was getting you know from 900 to 1100 and then Section 8 was paying you know,
1: significantly more. Um, and now they even, to this day, if you go look in Wilmington, North Carolina or New Hanover County and look up what the Section 8 rents are there, it's 1700 1800 for a three-bedroom. I think it's over 2000 now for a four-bedroom just because the market's exploded there. But um,
0: those are the main difference. One is guaranteed income. Um, the other one is not. Gotcha. Okay. And um, how do you know how much over uh, the government's willing to pay? With Section Eight housing, it's all online. You can go look it up. They'll tell you exactly how much they pay for specific units in specific counties. Got it. And let's say you buy a property. Um, I don't believe that all properties are ready to be Section Eight. Is there a process for you to convert them to Section Eight? Or no? I mean, as long as they comply with the Section Eight guidelines, meaning they have to have like bedrooms and they have to
1: have a, you know uh, a living room and there's other you know uh, parameters that has to has to fit, but I mean, I can make this penthouse condo in Miami right now section eight if I wanted to. There's really nothing preventing me from doing it. Um, it's a protected you know, class, so I can't... As long as the whole building allows section eight or allows rentals, long-term rentals, then I could sectionate it here if I wanted to. So it's not the tenant. It's not the house that's section eight. It's the tenant. So just think of it as like you can have... If you buy a vacant property the property itself is not Section 8 approved. It's the tenant that's approved, and when they move in, it becomes a Section 8 unit because they're rented to Section 8. And when the tenant leaves, it could the be... a tenant leaves, it's just it can be... You can do anything you want with it, yeah. Got it. Okay. So okay. Section 8 or not Section 8, it's
0: it's just based on the tenant, and they're occupied. Got it. That, that's, uh, that's something that, that's good to know. Um, And tell me, um, for example, you just mentioned this example about your apartment here in Miami. Does the government do Section 8 for luxury condos for example no 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 so they will pay for it but it doesn't make
1: any sense so this apartment here is three and a half million dollars the payment on it on a mortgage would be twenty thousand a month but sexually in miami pays three thousand a month for a three-bedroom right so you can never cash flow on a on a luxury
0: apartment like this got it okay so there is yeah. a predetermined amount that the government is willing to pay based bedroom on bedroom count and based on um location got you so i go online i look you know miami is three thousand dollars that means that if I get a property that's renting at $2,000, for example. And you can cash flow. I'm cash flowing 1000 Exactly. Makes sense. And so tell me, um, how were you able to scale? And what I'm really getting to is like, how do you operate all of these units at the same time? Because I'm sure you have a pro- project manager. You can't do it all yourself, right? And so Ew. I have nine full-time property managers across four states that handle all my properties. Uh, my
1: involvement is maybe three to five hours per week, and that generally consists of like a uh, Zoom calls with them on Fridays, and then just manual approval of any large ticket items that, you know, might need to get handled. Like we had a house burned down the other day. We had to deal with the insurance claim, and then we we sold it because we never, like I said, we, we never renovate, we never rebuild. We just uh, get the replacement cost covers, um, and then we sell the burnt down unit to like a flipper or somebody that wants to, you know, do new construction there. But um, as far as how I scaled, it's kind of like what I mentioned earlier. I would buy a lot of, I started out by reinvesting the cash that I had from wholesaling. I built a track record. That's all that matters. Um, you can't go to any investor and uh, approach them asking them for money without having proof that you know what you're doing. So I knew I had to do that as fast as possible. And that's kind of when I started buying the condos, and then eventually the single families, and then eventually getting into Section 8. And when I had you know two or three Section 8 units, and I was able to prove that out for a few months, it was a lot easier to go to an investor and say, hey, look. I already have these, you know, nine or ten units. Some of them are on Section Eight. Like I'm getting guaranteed income. Um, do you want? I want. I have these other 100 units that I want to buy right now for seven million. I don't have the 20% down for the bank for 1.4 million. You know, do you want to put that in? We'll split the equity. We'll split the the expenses. We'll split the cash flow. And then in three years, I'll I'll occupy all these properties or two years. I think it was 24 months is normally what I would run. And then in 24 months, I'll occupy all these properties with Section Eight. We'll go to the bank, do a cash out refinance. You'll get your you know,
0: monthly cash flow and you'll also get your return. Um, and that's just generally how I ran it. That's amazing. And so in terms of the equity split that you're giving to the investor, is it 50-50 or it varies? You know, it's 50 50 on the equity split and then for cash flow,
1: generally give them a little bit more um, uh, depending. It just depends on who the investor was. Like if I, it was an acquaintance, then obviously we could work out a, a better deal. If it's a complete stranger that I met through a cars and coffee event, then you know um at the, at the time that i was building i really didn't care about the monthly dollar cash flow that i was getting all i cared about was net worth growth and unit count growth because the more units you get the more people take you seriously right you can go to a bank and the second they ask you to see your balance sheet and rut roll and you show them that you have 500 units even if you have partners on them like it's a whole different game the term sheet changes the relationship changes the opportunities change so all i cared about was whatever terms they wanted, if it was remotely reasonable, I would accept it because I knew I was going to be buying them out anyways, and I knew that I was going to be retaining the units anyways. Um, so that was always always part of my
0: strategy, was just net worth accumulation. Got it. And um, so that makes a lot of sense. And you know, can you explain a little bit about what cash out refinance is and what the strategy is in terms on you know a bigger scale? Yeah. So like, let's say uh, we go and buy. Even numbers, a million dollars with the
1: properties, $100,000 each property. So call it 10 properties that we buy. And um all 10 of them are vacant, right? Mm-hmm. And normally what we would do is we would occupy all 10 properties with Section A tenants. So let's say that all 10 properties are generating $0 per month. And now we put 10 tenants in there at $1,500 a month each. It's now generating $15,000 a month in gross rents, or I don't know, like 140 dollars $150,000 per year. So from that point forward, Um, when we would do a cash out refinance, we would have them come do an appraisal and now we can show them a rent roll of, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars per year that are guaranteed that we can show verified bank statements showing, Hey, look, this is a guaranteed portfolio with section eight tenants that has been stabilized. Now that prop portfolio bit was, you know, comes from being worth next to nothing to a lot more. And generally, we would see 20 25% bump in valuation simply by occupying. And we wouldn't touch it. We wouldn't remodel. We wouldn't do anything. So all we were doing was forcing appreciation through rent rolls. And then we would go do a cash out refinance, go to the bank, ask for a bigger loan. Um, I would only ever pull out the amount of equity that I needed to buy out my partner. I would never max out the cash out, even though I could have, because uh, I still wanted to retain equity
0: in the deal. I still wanted to be able to cash flow monthly. Got it. So for example, you say you bought this properties for $3 million. So when you guys go in together, the oh, investor owns half of that. So he owes 1.5. Correct. On and a 3.5 purchase, yeah. And then after you guys have, after you have retenanted the houses, then the NOI changes and the valuation changes and it's higher. Exactly, yeah. Then you basically pull out money to pay out that one and a half million dollars. Exactly, yeah. And that's
1: also the cash flow that is being built month to month. So let's say it takes two years to do that cash out refi or two two and a half however long it takes to stabilize everything mm. on 10 units it would take a year but let's just say that it was two years um i also pull whatever cash flow they were getting monthly that's deducted from their initial you know cash outlay on the down payment so then that would just be removed from that
0: so got that, it whatever okay whatever the balance was would be paid out to them that's a cash out refi. got it so they're getting paid based on their equity and the cash flow goes towards that plus the sell also go source the or through the, that as well. And they'd be paid a- according to whatever the equity structure was. Exactly. Okay, got it. And so I'm I'm sure they capture some of the upside, right? Oh yeah. Yeah, of course. So that was that's a big part of it is they wanted to,
1: you know, see appreciation in it as well. But most of them just wanted a place to park their money for, for most of them and also get the, the benefits of the deduction because we could split out you know, a lot of them made a lot more money than me, obviously. So that's why they were in this liquidity position. So they needed these write-offs so they could take 70% and I could take 30% and they're super happy about any losses and depreciation that we had. So, um, that was part of the deal as well, that they would be able to benefit on a higher end from, from the
0: losses. Right. And so tell the audience why an investor with a high net worth would benefit from depreciation, for example. Um, because they would have, let's say they have a ton of a ton
1: of income and they might have not bought, and they may have not had enough expenses or deductions for that year. And now they're able to write off of a lot of the deductions and losses from that portfolio. Um, even if they're just paper losses, it just reduces their taxable income. So they pay less, they'll pay less in
0: federal and state income tax. Got it. And so um, could, uh, could I hear a pitch, for example, for the investor? Like you put in the money and then what's the upside above? You know the the price is it like a 2080 or you know or a seventy thirty? i would leave that completely up to them it's their money uh, i wouldn't actually pitch them
1: on a return i would say hey look what do you need in order for me to get this 1.2 million and 1.3 million and generally it was 20 30 percent return that they're looking for on the overall you know time horizon of the of the investment so i don't know 10 to 12 percent per year most most of them are really happy in because outperforming at the time the stocks that they had their money you know sitting in and it was a real asset and they got the cash flow monthly and they got the tax benefits and, you know, the risk was really low. So that was all really attractive to them. As far as the actual pitch that I would pitch them, it was, hey, look, man, um, I have all these properties that are currently rented out, stabilized and guaranteed. Um, I know that you have nothing else in your portfolio that has guaranteed passive cash flow every single month. I already have my management team in place. So you don't have to do anything. You literally have to meet me at the attorney's office, write a check, close on it, and then I'll send you your your capsula split every single month. And then I'll see you in two years when I decide to do a cash out refi. So I, I almost forced them to be a sign-on partner. I, I want no involvement from them on a day-to-day basis. I don't want them to have any involvement on the, the operation, on, you know, hey, like, who's this employee? Who are we hiring here? All this other stuff. So that's a big part of it. Yeah, that makes I just sense. think it's not to be as easy for them as possible. And then they see that you know we, we set up our own LLC, it's joint LLC, like' we're, we're each you know members of it. so it's all legit. We have an attorney, we have operating agreements. we I, mean, I very
0: clearly define the roles that they have in the in the deal. Got it. And so I would uh, get a little bit of knowledge on you said you were buying 100 units. Uh, so when you buy 100 units, is it valued at a multifamily kind of scenario? So that there is a cap rate on it, um, but for the most part, we were looking at
1: we were looking at it more on a comp basis and seeing what properties were selling in the area. And they, the appraiser at the time for the hundred units that we did buy, it was actually ninety two units that we bought at, at one time for we bought it for six point two million. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was like sixty some thousand dollars per door. Um, their valuation was blended between what recent properties in the area had sold, combined with what the rent was. The main reason we bought that portfolio was because the landlord previously had no idea what he was doing, and there was no streamlined process. Like he still had a physical office where tenants had to go and deposit their like money order into a box outside the door. Like that's how primitive we're talking. So we went in there and streamlined everything,
0: and we're able to uh, increase the rent dramatically with Section Eight. Got it. Okay. Um. So how many deals did you do when it comes to uh, big units? You know. I mean, I've probably bought three portfolios um,
1: since I started. Majority of my acquisitions has been like creating these mini portfolios is what I call them. So in a given month, I might make 30 or 40 offers and then be able to maybe get eight or 10 under contract. And then what I'll do is I'll send all 10 of those to the bank and do one blanket loan, or I'll just buy them all cash all at one time and do one one big closing. That way it allows me to handpick each individual property. A big mistake that people make is they'll try to buy a portfolio because they want to scale fast. But every portfolio that you'll ever buy with single family units in it, it's going to be filled with trash. There's at least 20 to 30% of them. The landlord just wants to, that the current owner throws them into a portfolio because they know that they're, they're good units will jack up the valuation of their shittier units. Right? Yeah. So I really don't like buying portfolios unless there's a ton of due diligence, unless like we're manually inspecting every unit. A lot, a lot of them will also stuff them with bad tenants. You know, if, if you have 70% occupancy and you are about to sell your portfolio, guess what? You're going to go find as many people as you can to fill the other 30%, say that we have a hundred percent occupancy and you put a bunch of criminals and just like rejects that you don't want in your, in your properties at all. And then you're stuck evicting them over the next, you know, however long.
0: Yeah. So how did you go about doing that? Because I know when it comes to multifamily, you know, it's easy to get, um, the general contractor, for example, to go out with his team and check out all the units but oh, when it comes to different houses, like a portfolio of houses, are these houses mostly made up into one area, or are they? Oh yeah, houses? yeah, it's all zip code. It's all in one zip code. Yeah. Okay, so it it kind of is kind of like a general contractor or person comes in and still does all the inspections and all that. Yeah. At the time when I didn't have a ton of units and I was buying
1: my first portfolio, I actually had a um a hand a full time handyman that I hired to be able to go look at those properties and also come up with estimates to fix whatever. Need to be fixed. Like I said, we weren't buying really terrible ship units, so it was mostly like, "Hey, these outlets don't work. Section eight's going to fail. That. Hey, these windows aren't locking. We need to put new locks. So those are the types
0: of things that we looked for. Got it. Because as you mentioned earlier, you're mostly focused on Turkey, property. right? Exactly. Right. Got it. Okay, and uh tell me, what got you into real estate? I mean, it
1: was a, c- a complete accident. Um, I, I was not planning on doing it. I had a marketing company in college. I also did uh, software. I had like an e-commerce uh, marketing software at the time that I was working on. And when I got into buying my first condo out of college, I decided that, hey, this is simply just kind of like a stepping stone until I can get that single family property that I really want. I ended up buying a, a big dog, like a Doberman Pinscher. My condo didn't allow me to have that dog in the, in the condo, so I had to go and buy a house with a fence. And that was kind of the catalyst to be able to rent out that condo that kind of gave me the light bulb moment to, Hey, I'm making $400 a month over my mortgage and I did zero work this entire month. And they weren't even section eight. This is a regular tenant. Um, uh, let me see if I can keep doing more of this because like I said, I had a marketing company, so we would have done $500 a month as a marketing retainer for a company. I have to talk to them every single week, you know, it was a huge headache. And I hated doing it. So when I saw that I could make the same money without doing anything by just simply owning a property, that's kind of when I started
0: getting more and more into real estate. Got it. And so uh, tell me a little bit about how your mind works in terms of like, you decided obviously to go big um, and scale, you know, obviously for you, high net worth and units are what's important to you. Right. How were you able to streamline this process? Um. It was just a lot of trial and error. I mean, at the time there was no
1: course or coaching or consulting on section eight. Most of the people that were doing it were either doing like large scale projects and like government housing. So I really didn't have any mentors to lean on. It was just a matter of like, okay, this condo worked great. Okay. This condo, uh, sucks. Cause it was part of an HOA. Let me go about try single family. So I bought a lot of properties for like 150, 160 grand, uh, that were single family in non HOA neighborhoods. And then was like, all right, that's great. But I just blew $30,000 on a down payment. Now I got to wait another three months to recuperate, you know, money and rents and reinvest. So i then, been, from that point on, I was like, what happens if I buy a $55,000 house? And that's when I bought the, you know, the Section 8 property that I didn't know was Section 8 at the time. Mm-hmm. So then I accidentally bought that house. And then I realized that Section 8 was a really good method. So then I was like, okay, well, I now know about Section 8. I now know about inspections. Let me find out how I screen tenants. Because I lost a ton of money at the beginning by putting in shitty tenants, by getting bad, you know, hard money loans by not choosing properties that were you know, ideal for Section 8. I bought a lot of two bedrooms. Section 8 is 20, 30% more on three and four bedrooms. Like, There's no reason to be buying a two bedroom at a time. So mm-hmm. all these things that you kind of learn, and that's kind of what I eventually I compiled into a course, into a coaching program to help you know new Section 8 investors avoid all these pitfalls.
0: Got it. And uh, tell us, how do you find Section 8 uh, tenants? I mean, when you're buying 100 doors, yeah. for example, I mean, then you find you.
1: So for the most part, let's say you buy a property and then you get it ready for section inspection. You call up the local housing authority and say, hey, look, I have a unit on one, two, three main street. It's a three bedroom, it's ready to go. They have a list of people looking for properties, right? So depending on how sophisticated that county is, like certain places that I invest in, um, they'll have like an email list and they'll just email all the all the prospective tenants and then they reach out to you directly and they go look at the property. Some of them have like a literal bulletin board in their you know, office that they'll put the address on there and tenants can go there and look at it. But we also advertise like on you know, Craigslist and Facebook Marketplace and stuff like that.
0: Got it. And okay, so they have a list. So basically when you, if someone is to go get a property and decide to rent it out to Section 8 tenant, how do you know with confidence whether you're going to have a tenant? Is there a way to check how many people are on the waiting list? Or- yeah, you can just call the housing authority in your county and tell them, hey, look, I'm at the poverty line, and I want
1: a Section 8 voucher. And they're probably going to first laugh at you and then tell you it's going to be anywhere from two to five years before you can get on, you know, get a, a free housing voucher. That's how big the demand is for affordable housing in the U.S. So there's a never-ending demand for trying as well. So there's uh, always uh, tennis. Two years to five years out waiting yeah. list for you to even get you know get a, a voucher to be able to then go look for a property so anytime we post a new property for sale we'll probably get i would say anywhere from 30 to 50 applicants in the first week it's it's i mean in, in almost any market that we do
0: got it and so can you tell me some of your best practices when it comes to uh tenanting someone as far as like screening yeah oh section a tenant i yeah I
1: yeah. So a big part of that, it just comes down to eviction history. We want to make sure they've ever been evicted, make sure they're not a convicted felon, make sure they're not a sex offender, all of the obvious low hanging stuff. Um, also check their credit, um, make sure that they're going to be at least somewhat responsible on paying their portion because even though Section 8 does pay the majority of the rent, some of the tenants have like a hundred or a $75 portion that they still need to pay. And we want to make sure they're going to pay that. Um and we also check their current property. I have my property manager go drive to their property, knock on their door, and say, Hey, look, we want to just do an inspection to make sure that um, you know, we know exactly what we're getting into.
0: So that that's a big uh indicator of how they're gonna treat your property as well. Got it. Sounds good. Um and so when it comes to multifamily, um, are you looking into getting into multifamily in section eight? And no. What is the reason why you're sticking to family, single families? Um, because I don't want to deal with creating a housing
1: project, you know, creating a large scale Section 8 government housing project with all the tenants on top of each other. It's not something I really want to do uh, for a few reasons. One, liquidity. Right now, if I go buy 100 units and I want to peel off 20 of them, sell them and do a 1031 into a larger portfolio, I can easily. If I want to go sell a 100 unit apartment complex, it's very difficult. Um, it's also a lot harder to sell. It's a lot less buyers that are interested in buying Hundred unit low income Section Eight you know um, apartment unit versus being able to peel off units. So it's liquidity is a big reason. Also expenses. I don't want to have to deal with on site property managers. I don't want to deal with the amenities that come with dealing with an apartment complex or the HOAs or the parking or everything else that comes with that. Um, when you have a tenant in a single family property, they're taking care of their property. They're cutting their own grass. They're uh, holding their own you know um, homeowners insurance policies for for content. It's just as a whole, just a whole lot easier, and um, we find appreciation is much higher as well. Single family properties—the demand section eight pays more, by the way, than they do on a, an apartment. So, single family demands higher rent, and people just want a place that they can call their own with their own backyard. And you know, it's we never have a shortage of demand with with a single family property. So, that's a big part of it. That makes sense.
0: Got it. So, um, tell me, what's your number one? productivity hack? Um, that's a good question. I would say
1: I always make a list before I go to sleep of what I want to accomplish the next day. There's like the top three things and it's always income producing things. That's what I think A lot of people get kind of stuck in this and it kind of screws them over is they make these huge to-do lists and then, they get, you know, uh, none of them actually move the needle for the bottom line and everything that I do is going to have some impact on on the revenue and making sure that it's improving over the previous previous month. And for me, that comes down to acquisitions, right? So if we're not adding properties to the portfolio, or if we're not looking at um, other ways to improve the education business, because like I said, I I also um, teach and do consulting on on Section 8 and in low income housing, then it, it really there's really no point. So I never really have more than I would say three or four things on that list, and I, I typically work in sprints, you know, three to four hours at a time, making sure that you know I identify, let's say, ten properties today. I wanted to identify ten properties that we could put under contract for this month. Another thing that I wanted to do was uh, we're creating updated content that we could offer as an upsell for current Section 8 students. So stuff like that, you know, that would actually um, produce more income is is what I focus on and that's really I would say my number one productivity high.
0: Got it. And so let's talk about some of your teachers. Yeah. Who have has helped who has helped you in your life get to where you are. Definitely my parents. Um, They're the number one as far as supporting and encouraging
1: me, to kind of take the entrepreneurship route. They never kind of downplayed it or or talked down on it because I know a lot of people want, hey, go to college, get a good job, blah, blah, blah. I did go to college. I never had any intention of getting a good job. Um, I always knew I wanted to do entrepreneurship on some level or investing on some level. So um, they helped a lot. Neither of them are in real estate. So it was mostly just like moral support and, you know, kind of, providing um, guidance on on certain things that I want to do I mean they they bought multiple houses for you know primary residents but never rental or investments so they were able to kind of guide me there and then eventually um when I kind of got started there some of my partners that I worked with um they eventually started helping me with just more general business advice um as we started kind of moving through it especially if they'd already been involved in investment properties so those are kind of the the two big ones ex partners combined with
0: my parents got it. Um, how did you pick your partners? It... How? Yeah. yeah. Just how much money they had. So you it would... It's to... solely liquidity. Because
1: that's all I was using them for was this is liquidity and making sure that um, they were going to be able to provide in order to get the deal closed. Anything after that, culture-wise or fit, I figured that out, you know, and I-,
0: I can get along with anybody. So as long as we agreed on terms, the rest of it was pretty straightforward. Got it. And so did you meet these people at Cars and Coffee and the meetups, for example, is that is that where you found these people or did you do it
1: yeah so like i said real estate investor association meetups are really good there's a lot of investors that are there and if you have a good deal it's pretty easy to partner up with people there and they're already in that mindset um i did meet one partner um at the cars and coffee event and we did a bunch of deals together and then where else i met another one it was from linkedin it was like a mutual acquaintance that's another thing that i did a lot of when i was building my portfolio was talking about it people love to you know, move in silence, and you know, uh, what is it? Money whisper as well. You know, whatever the platitudes <laughs> about that, I didn't give a fuck about it all. If I was buying twenty unit deal, I was putting it on Instagram. I was talking to people about it. I was kind of explaining how it worked because people love seeing numbers. They love seeing income. So I had no problem bragging about it. Hey, look, I just bought twenty units in Wilmington, North Carolina. It's going to generate six thousand dollars a month in net income, and this is how I did it. And um, I would have a different story basically every week. And the side effect, I had no idea what I was doing outside of just simply, you know, flexing on people, which is always fun. But at the time, it started building like, oh, you're the Section 8 guy. So whenever someone had a deal, they would just send it to me. And then that was kind of the byproduct of that. And I really, you know, that eventually helped really accelerate things and get more partners involved. And like I said, I eventually met somebody from LinkedIn um, who was referred to me. And, you know, he had half a million bucks he wanted to invest. So we, we did a partnership together and bought a bunch of units. So that was... That's basically um, how I was able to network.
0: Got it. Um, tell me, um, what what is when you do you have any negotiation tactics when you go into a seller meeting? You know, when you were starting out, and as you develop now into a hundred million, I'm sorry, to a hundred doors like uh, portfolio purchases, um, um, you can give as far as negotiation tactics. I would always
1: just look at how motivated they were gonna be, right? And that's generally a result of how long the property's been on the market. Um, I would always put the property under contract by almost any means necessary by telling them almost whatever they wanted to hear in order to get it under contract. And then once it's under contract, you have all the power, right? Because they can't pull out from the deal because they're already signed and you're able to do your due diligence, you can do your inspections. And the last thing they want in their head, they already know that the property is sold, right They're expecting it to sell and you have a lot more leverage to be able to demand you know repairs or demand um, reductions in price or closing credits because they probably have already moved on onto what they want their next project or what they want to do. So my biggest thing was always to be able to make sure that my agent would get the property in a contract even if it was full list price and then from there we would be able to beat them down um, another 10, 15 percent. Um, because they don't want to show it as, as falling out of escrow. No agent wants to explain to the next potential buyer, like, hey, uh, this fell out of contract because X, Y, and Z, because it just makes it look bad, and no one really wants to deal with it. So that's probably the biggest thing was uh, was that. And then I would also always look at the repair list that they had. Um, there's always a repair list, no matter how nice the house is. And I would
0: leverage that to get you know a better deal as well. Got it. And um, tell me, now that you've developed and you've grown a bigger operation... What are some key things that you do in order to find the best talent to put in place for these positions at your company?
1: Uh, really, my only positions are property managers, and I only hire entry-level property managers, so I really don't care about their skill level or experience. Um, I like to be able to teach them our style and our policies and kind of our, our model, and it just works a lot better. Um, I hate people that come in with preconceived notions, they don't want to deal with Section 8 or... They don't know about Section 8 or they might have done one Section 8 deal and they don't want to manage it. So basically, almost all of my employees are between 25 and 30 years old. All entry level that they have been able to kind of grow up, grow into as far as their roles. And then um, I overpay all of them. So for the most part, mm-hmm. they have very little incentive to leave. And then I also give them like upward mobility options as far as um, being in acquisitions. If they want to help me you know, buy properties or if they want to help be transaction coordinators on it as well. Um, I kind of work with them as well on that. So um, I don't look for the best talent. I just look for the most, I guess, trainable or most
0: best communication, best, best organized is is super helpful in in this space as well. Got it. Um, So let's take a few minutes and talk about your course and coaching program. Um, Yeah. Yeah. What's when when you start um, this coaching program? So I started about a year and a half ago. Um, I was on TikTok, or I still am on TikTok and
1: Instagram. And anytime I posted a deal or posted a closing, people were always asking me questions about how I did it. You know, how did I get partners? How did I buy properties from out of stakes? I started doing that as well. And uh, eventually, I just got to the point where I was like, you know, I might as well just make a whole video course on this and explain it all at once. And then maybe I'll make some additional passive income through the sale of the course. And that morphed into then coaching. And I started doing one-on-ones. So then I was getting paid to talk about real estate all day, which. I really enjoy so uh, that was nice. And then I started doing webinars and kind of teaching people at scale. And then I built out my own software to kind of help people find the deals. Um, we have a bunch of different data sources that show all the seller finance deals in the country. That shows, you know, the properties based on the cash flow, so you can filter based on cash flow. So um, we started selling that. Now it's kind of become like a whole education company and suite of products that we offer
0: to new investors. That's great. Um, can you highlight? top one two uh students that you have and their story yeah so we have one student his name is jackson uh he started with me about a year ago he
1: um didn't have much cash to start so we helped him with the creative financing and he started buying lists of properties for absentee landlords and then uh reaching out to them like mm. sending letters every day like physical letters in the mail to the address mm. and trying to reach to them and eventually he found somebody that would uh Offered a 90% loan to value deal on a seller finance deal. He needed to come up with 10%. Uh, he financed that through a hard money lender uh that was willing to be in the second position on it, and bought a bunch of properties with uh basically 0% down. I think it was 142 properties that he was able to buy from this portfolio in order to do that. And that was all many of them section eight, you know, majority of them. I think he's been doing that for the last. I don't know, six months, just stabilizing that portfolio. And you um, will eventually do a cash out refinance and he'll have a ton of equity in it because he's been able to
0: jack up the overall rent roll on that portfolio significantly. Hey, real quick guys, no ads here, just real stories. Are you thinking of owning multifamily properties? Let's do it together. Join my multifamily cohort. We'll learn from experts and help each other buy that first multifamily property. Head over to multifamilycohort.com. That's great. So, um, this student of yours started about a year ago, and yeah. now 168 units, and is doing the section eight method. So it's 142 units right now, as far as I know. He might have a little bit more. Um, I haven't checked recently on where he's at, but yeah. And then he, he uh, occupied them with section eight. Got it. And so, can you, for someone that's listening, um, what is that in cash flow, in terms, um, or like, to- yeah, yeah. So for for him, a lot of
1: the. Like, I mean the equity he, he was the only partner he was the only investor buying it buying into it so it, he he retained hundred percent of the of the equity on that deal mm-hmm. um as far as the cash flow obviously it's limited because he you know basically mortgaged the entire thing at hundred percent loan of value mm-hmm. uh so he had payments to not only um the seller but also to the hard money lender which I think at the time was like seven and a half percent was the rate on on the 10 percent that he borrowed uh, but the main attractive part of that is a lot of the units were vacant. So he was able to reoccupy them with much higher value tenants quicker. And uh I think he was like cash flowing like twenty twenty five thousand dollars the last time I checked um on a monthly level there. Got it. So this was in one year. And again he yeah. bought a portfolio, right? He bought a portfolio, which I advise him actually not to because it's it's a lot to take on, especially as a new investor. And he bought it out of state. He wasn't even local. So he had to hire two property managers to take over um the the day to day management of it but um he he wanted to go bigger or go home, so I just kind of supported him after he he made the offer and got it somehow under
0: contract <laughs> that's great um and uh, do you have any other case study you'd like to highlight? um uh, majority of the other students are are new students that
1: are coming that are either in college university or they have a full time job and they wanna they have money uh they have you know ten fifteen twenty thousand dollars minimum, and they wanna invest it somewhere that's like the biggest i think um hurdle that people have is they have all this saved money, but they have no idea what to do with it. They don't want to put it into crypto. They don't want to put it into stocks. They don't want to put it into Amazon. So section eight offers a really good alternative that allows them to you know, cash flow monthly.
0: Got it. Yeah. That's interesting. And so for anyone that wants to um, hear more from you, learn more from you, check check out on Instagram, where can they do that? Yeah. So, uh,
1: so, as far as if you want to learn more, I'll do a webinar at section eight, the number eight webinar.com, section eight webinar.com. Mm-hmm. Or you can just get me directly if you have any questions. Uh, my Instagram handle is T Cruz NC. That's T as in Tom Cruz, C R U Z NC, like North Carolina. Um, or you can just email me,
0: Tom at Tom Got it. Um, sounds good. So uh, thank you, Tom. I really appreciate having you on today. And Yeah, I'm wrong it's exciting to hear about the section eight world and yeah. I'm happy to have my listeners learn about this because it's something that I never presented. So, um, thank you. And, uh, yeah, no hope to, for you to come on in the future. Thanks. I appreciate it. Awesome. Have a great day. Yeah. You too. Thanks for joining us on Elevate America. We hope this story inspired you as much as it inspired us. If it did, please give us a rating, leave a review, and tell your friends. Let's keep the dream alive. I'm Julian Castle. Until next time, dream big and reach for new heights.